Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. It is truly my pleasure today to be able to welcome Rabbi Yoshua Bernstein, who is formerly a rabbi in Halifax, which I know is on the eastern side of Canada. But more importantly, he has served for many years in key functions in the Gush Etzion area, both in Yeshivat Haaretzion, in or Torah Stone institutions, as the administrator of the rabbinical court in Gush Etzion as well. And part of what we want to talk about today is tefillah, which he's one of the experts of how to bring it about and make it more meaningful through two of his books, Daven Your Age, and most recently, Murmurings of a Millionaire. So Rabbi Grunstein, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate this. Pleasure to be with you, Rabbi Mentenki, and a further pleasure to be with you and see the shul where my own wife grew up as a kid. So uh, it's wonderful uh, to be with you and with everyone else listening. Okay, everyone wants to know, what was her maiden name? Her maiden name was Tali Hirsch. And uh -huh. uh, together with uh, her family and many members of her family, they, of course, Dobbins and, and Kins uh, during the 70s, 80s, before they yes. started to make Aliyah. No, we, we know the family very well. And just to get started about tefillah for a moment, talking about a shul right behind me, um, you know, Everyone struggles with tefillah, and I have the privilege of also working in a high school to watch even additional struggles which adolescents have for tefillah. When you're writing and speaking about tefillah, what do you think is the hardest part, and what do you think is the thing that we seem to be missing to make it more meaningful? Well, Rabbi, I think that the hardest part about tefillah is that uh, our educational system basically stopped teaching us how to daven the minute we knew how to say the words. So if I uh, have to pinpoint it, I say about fifth grade, sixth grade tops, most of us knew how to daven, how to say the words of the sitter, when to stand up, when to sit down. And therefore, every time we open a sitter and we can be 30, 40, 50 years old, we're davening like a kid. We're davening like they taught us way back when. So we've advanced in many, many other realms in our Torah learning. We've advanced in general in our political inclinations, we've advanced in so many realms, and yet tefillah seemed to stay the way it was. And I think that's the biggest challenge of tefillah. At a certain point, we continue to learn the laws of tefillah, but not the experience of tefillah. But how do you teach the experience of tefillah? It's something you have to experience. You can't just teach it. Well, first and foremost, I think you're right. We have to experience it. You have to go to shul or daven at home and daven and pray. Number two, I think that the way at least I've suggested to do it is to go through it yourself. Namely, uh, I was taught by uh, a social worker that before they became a social worker, they had to go through therapy on their own. So uh, I say that the year that I started to teach about tefillah was the year I went through therapy in tefillah. I literally stood before the sitter and asked, what does this mean to me? What is, is this significant? Is this substantial? Yes or no, or maybe. Why is it that, for example, we're still asking for things that they've asked for for 500 years? Maybe we don't need them as much. Maybe we do need them as much. Maybe we need them more. I think that every one of us has to just take a sitter and ask, what does this mean to me? And we can start not with the words, because the words are in Hebrew and they're challenging, but rather we can start with the very laws that we know so well. Why are we standing here? Why are we sitting here? Why is it that when the ark is open, we're standing, and when the ark is closed, we're sitting? 
Why is it that we're putting our finger up there when Torah is open for Hagbar Glila? And I think that's the first and foremost things we have to ask, namely, what am I doing? Well, let's go back to that. A person wants to get up and uh, learn how they're doing. And I'll digress for a moment. In my shul, we have started to do a series of WhatsApp recordings every day about tefillah, call prayer perspectives. And the fascinating question I received from someone is, where do you get that information from? A, a regular balabait wants to be able to focus on tefillah, and you say they have to know why. They have to ask themselves why. Where are they going to find the answers? I think that today there's no shortage of answers in terms of the literature that's come out, even in English, on tefillah. I'm just one of many. And there's many good books out there, and there's much information on Google and on the internet. But I think, Rabbi, you're touching on the very challenge. Usually we ask these questions during tefillah. But during tefillah, we have another job, and that is to pray the words and to get through it. So we have an obligation to say Shema with the brachot before and after, and the silent amida, and eventually we've davened. Those questions that there are answers for out there, we have to ask ourselves after tefillah. And here comes the biggest challenge, I believe, to everything we've been talking about. Do we have the motivation to do that outside of the prayer service. Because during davening, it's very easy to take a sitter and look in the English translation and even in the interpretations. But once davening is over, we have to have that motivation to take the sitter and to say, well, we're going to daven again tomorrow. Let's take five minutes, maybe 10, and read something about one of the passages during tefillah. The way I did it, I'll be honest with you, Rabbi, is that the year that I gave lectures before I published my first book on tefillah called Davin Your Age, I actually, after davening, made it my business to write in my phone just a note, look up about this. And that's the way I built my lectures. But I had to have that motivation or in my, my situation, that obligation to give lectures in order to actually want to go onto Google and to look for that information. So there isn't any shortage out there. However, I have to be honest, there's two kinds of literature on davening. One of them is very philosophical. I would say overbearing, meaning they assume that basically you have a substantial davening and they're going to make it even more substantial. I find that literature to be not so helpful because it's too much. It's really too much. I think that the literature that's more efficient are the ones that are A, shorter, just in terms of the lit in, uh, in each passage, they have less to say. And number two, they're more practical. Namely, they speak to the common man or woman that's davening. And in terms of the experiential piece of it, it, one of the interesting things years ago, I was having a conversation with Mayor, Rabbi Mayor Schiller, who teaches at MTA, fascinating person. And he was explaining to me that one of the challenges we have in our community is uh, decorum, not negative decorum, but we're too decorous. We are quiet, we sit, we don't say tefillot out loud. And that in the Haredi community, that they engage more with tefillah because you walk into a big midrash and the tefillot are being blasted out there by everyone. Do you find that to be a real problem? 
I think that what you're touching on, Rabbi, is one of the experiences I go through when I uh, leave the uh, boundaries of the land of Israel. I go to any community around the world. And that is that in Israel, we're more of a spontaneous kind of culture. So people do feel more at home in davening, and it represents itself in the lack of decorum, I should say, in the way people dress when they come to shul, even on a Shabbos or a Yom Tov, and in the way they act. And the advantage of that is, of course, that they also feel more connected to what's happening versus outside of Israel, where there is more decorum, more of a culture of this is a proper ceremony. And there's a way to come in, there's a way to go out, and there's a way to sit, and there's the way to run it. And if I can give a practical ramification between the two, I would say that in Israel, when I'm leading davening and I start a song, almost everyone sings with you as long as the song is, of course, one they know and they connect to. Outside of Israel, unless you actually say sing along, people don't know that, yes, they can sing along with this song. And I found that in many, many places around the world. So I'm the same person, the same chazin, using the same tunes that are known to both places. And yet the culture is such that people are far more careful in the shuls outside of Israel than in Israel to feel part of what's happening and to actually feel actively part of it. So to move from that fifth grade experience of tefillah that you described to an adult experience, you're suggesting that what you need to do is study. You need to learn, you need to be uh, establish questions and seek the answers. Are there other things beyond the intellectual that a person can do to make their tefillah more meaningful? In my opinion, 100%. If I, uh, my first book on tefillah, I dealt mainly with trying to make it substantial for the individual. I think that practically, my second book that just came out, Murmurings of a Millionaire, I dealt with technically. How do we make davening more pleasant for the davener in a minion? And especially during COVID, I found that because we took a step out of shul and we stopped davening in a minion for such a long time, I felt that there were so many things that we do in a minion that don't necessarily have to be there. And those things sometimes create an experience of davening that's not substantial for the davener, even the person that's there every day and comes on time on Chavez and Yom If I can give just two examples of the things I dealt with. Number one, we say the mourner's Kaddish quite frequently during davening. Now that mourner's Kaddish means a lot to the mourner. And as a mourner of just two and a half years ago, I know how substantial it is. You're putting the person who passed away on your daily agenda three times a day. Having said that, if you look around the room, except for the person saying Kaddish, most of the people are disengaged at those moments. Number two, you're also disengaged at moments where you say numerous mishabeirachs when you have the Torah reading. So I think that there's a lot of things we do in shul that basically are not giving a pleasant, substantial experience to the davener. And there's a lot that we can do, technically try and fix that by maybe eliminating part of those mourners' kaddishes, maybe minimizing the mishabeirachs, not to mention choosing the people that lead davening very carefully, giving them basic criteria of what songs to use, what songs not to use, balancing out a very long davening with the proper tunes that won't make it even longer. 
I think The Sitter is a very beautiful book, and I don't put the blame there. But sometimes I do put the blame in the people that run davening and run services. So we've done, you know, I think a lot of synagogues have done those kinds of things. Uh, at KINS, Mishaberachs have been knocked out, actually, during laning, except for the Mishaberach for the Ole himself. But the additional Mishaberachs are not there. There is always a financial concern that every shul has, because it means that people who used to make a Mishaberach or make a donation are not necessarily doing it. Something we have to educate people, give the tzedakah anyways. Uh, I, I can't imagine knocking out Kadeshim for mourners. That I can't imagine. But we've also done things where there are certain things we used to sing that we don't sing anymore. Some people are grateful for it. Some people are upset about it. But it, there has been a reset. But those are things that bring people a little bit more to, um, to a place where they can engage. But you just brought them, you're bringing them now to the starting line. You've removed some of the obstacles. What are the positive things that you think we need to change? You visited shows, you grew up in shows in Chutzlaretz. If you, looking back, if you had to redesign, keeping the same Siddur, redesign how we have Tfilah during the week, which is probably even more complicated than Shabbat, what would you do differently? Well, Tfilah during the week is something that if you ask me how I redesign it, I do a few things. Number one, I would not necessarily start it where we usually started. Um, if I can take the example of outside of Israel, many Ashkenazic shuls are davening by Birkot Ashacha, the morning blessings, go through Korbanot, then Suke de Zimra. All the above do not require a minion, and they take a good chunk of time, about 15 minutes. I would, I would ask people to say all of those at home or privately, open the shul early, and the Communal service would start with Yishtabach and Baruch Hu with the Chatzik Kaddish prior. So I would make davening that much shorter at the beginning as well as at the end, end with Aleinu and have people say the Shir Shayom and Kelokeinu on their own. Number two, I would incorporate singing even during the week. I have an opinion on this. Maybe it's a bit too opinionated that when we sing, we're actually getting to a place we want to be versus just saying the words, which more rep represents and reflects where we are. If you ever look at people at Kumsitzim and other such gatherings, they close their eyes, either in a slow song or a fast song. I would incorporate a bit of singing even during the week. And because we shortened davening, it wouldn't take more time in any which way, shape or form, but it would make it more substantial. And number three, I would incorporate something else. And that is something that I have to admit, I learned outside of Israel. Um, before COVID, and hopefully maybe in the future, one of my jobs on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur was not just to be a chazan for Shachris, but during Musaf, there was another chazan. My job was to give small, very, I would say, one-minute explanations here and there about what we're about to say. Now, halachically, it is not a problem because it enhances davening, but I have to be honest with you, as Winston Churchill said, or... There's about 10 versions who said it. When he wrote a very long letter, he said, I apologize for writing the long letter. I didn't have time to write a short letter. And you have to say something succinct and short. You have to really think, what do I want to tell the community? I have exactly 60 seconds to say it about the next prayer we're about to say. So those are the things, if I have to redesign, I would incorporate. More communal singing, shortening the davening, the beginning and end, and finally, 
explanations here or there, obviously not repeating the same things every week, but taking various parts and saying, this is what we're about to say and this is what it's about. Does anyone do that? Have you seen during the week? Shows? During the week? Have you seen shuls that start at Yishtabach? During the week, I have seen shuls that start at Yishtabach during COVID, mainly because it was very uncomfortable to daven outside and everything that went into it. Um, in Ashkenazic shuls, that's the extent I saw. In Sephardic shuls, I have seen it much more, especially Teimani shuls, because according to the Rambam, that's where the communal davening starts from. The Rambam Paskins in Hilchot Tefillah, Perik Zayin, Halacha Yudbet, that that's exactly where it starts from, from the Yishtabach prior Chatzikadish. In other words, in his minion, Suke de Zimra and Korbanot were not part of the minion. See, it's interesting because Chazal also talked about the prohibition from making hosafot during the week for, for laning to add on additional aliyahs because they were concerned people have to go to work and they're rushed. Right. And right. to start singing would seem to uh, would seem to I understand the advantage to it, but I can just imagine the Balabatim were saying, "Okay, now my standard is I have fifteen minutes here, and you've now made it eighteen minutes. Aren't we violating that same kind of spirit that Chazal were so one hundred percent, one hundred percent, Rabbi? And therefore, I said, if you shorten the davening, then you'll have that additional time to sing from here to there. Not everything, but certain parts." And I'll add to it that I don't think we need to sing the same parts every week. In other words, if you're in a shul, then I happen to think that if one week you sing this passage and the next Shabbos or next day sing a different passage, you're going to make many parts of davening substantial. But somehow we have a tendency that we sing this part of Kedusha every week, sometimes in the same tune again and again. Next part of Kedusha we never sing. So most people maybe even don't know the words, or if they know the words, it's not that substantial to them because they haven't sung it. But you're absolutely right. That can't prolong davening even by a minute. The minute we've done that, people are going to walk out. So we haven't gained a thing. It has to be balanced with the time and the watch. I, 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 it sounds wonderful. I'm a little bit hesitant because I think what I have learned over the years is that once you cut something down, that becomes the new expectation and people forget, um, oh, it used to be 30 minutes. Now it's only 20 minutes and we're singing four minutes. They'll say, well, no, it could be 16 minutes. Um, sometimes it, there was a, a fascinating uh, theory regarding uh, day school tuition on a totally different level where people said in the United States for tax reasons, lower tuition and make the difference between what was the tuition and what is the tuition a contribution and then people can take it as a tax deduction and they said the people who can afford will have the tax deduction it lasted about three four years and wow. then those people who were giving the money um said you know this year i'm a little tight i won't be able to give it and they forgot what the original tuition they used to be paying had been so it's i think there's a real challenge of human nature in that in terms of what schools do you're you're 100 correct that hit fourth, fifth, sixth grade, somewhere in there, and all of a sudden the kids start transitioning into a minion. Um, what would you do differently in schools? Well, first of all, I think that in schools, just like in shuls, um, the same would apply. I think that we have to shorten where we begin and end davening, and in between, 
we should add an explanation here and there, not long, because kids have even a lower attention span than adults. So if I said a minute before, it has to be maybe 30, 35 seconds. Number two, as I said, a song here and there, not a long one, always looking at the time. And I'm going to add one more thing about a minion in, in school. One of the things about minion during the week is the need to get through it and to say every word of it. The Shulchan Aruch does paskin in Siman Aleph, in the first chapter of the Code of Jewish Law, that it's better to say less with kavana, with proper intent, than more with less kavana. And I think about this all the time because when we get to Slichot, for example, during the year, there's a lot to say. Most of us don't understand what we're saying, but we're happy we said it, so that we can put a, a check on it. If I was uh, running davening in school, what I would add is two more things. Number one, instead of the rabbi or the teacher giving explanations, I would put that onus on the kids. And at the very least, if there's 30 kids davening, 30 different parts of davening became substantial to 30 different people. Maybe just one part because they don't listen to the 29 others. But at least we've gained that, which is more than we had before. Number two, I would very much consider shortening even parts of davening that we usually don't in shul. If I can give one example, on Mondays and Thursdays, we have a long tachanun. I don't think we have to say each and every passage there. And I know that Rav Herschel Schechter, for example, amongst others, has suggested that he himself can't say it all because Minion's going too fast. He picks each time something else. And that's what I would add in schools, not to mention the fact that, yes, even in class, just like we learn about the laws of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Kashrut, Shabbos, there could be a class or two about the experience of davening, not so much the laws of davening. I think that's covered. The experience of davening. It's interesting. The more the teacher talks personally, the more I think it's going to be substantial. That's it's fascinating. Rav Shechter actually, I was once I once had this conversation with him about the longer tachnun. He does a third each time because that's as much as he could do. And he, uh, several years back, he actually recorded a video for Mechanchim, for educators about how to do davening in school. And he proposed cutting out a lot of the davening, especially in Psuke de Zimra, because the students should have a greater attention to what is being said as opposed to trying to get it all in. There is another school of thought that says, and I guess it's the chicken and egg approach, that says we have to prepare our children to be able to be in the minyanim in their shuls that aren't that good, let's say, but are fast, and we have to make sure that they learn how to daven quickly so that they'll be ready to daven in the regular shuls. There's, there's this t- tension of what comes first. If I can switch, we just have a little bit more time together and, and talk a little bit about Gush Etzion for a moment. You're the one of the administrators in the Beit Din of the Gush Etzion. One of the issues you deal with, I, I believe, are with Olim who are coming from Chutz Laretz with, with the various issues that come up there. Um, but I also know that recently in Gush Etzion, for the first time, there was a chief rabbi of the Gush Etzion, Rabbi Ramon, appointed there. Has, have we seen changes in how the Gush Etzion operates because we have a different kind of structure? Well, so far not. Um, I'll be honest, um, because of COVID, a lot of things that people had in mind were put on hold for two uh-huh. years and almost two years now. Um, we haven't yet seen big changes here in Gush Etzion, but there's a lot of talk, both in terms of, we mentioned davening, in terms of how shuls run, 
and beyond it, how communities run beyond shul, because quite frankly, there's a lot that's changed in the world. And from this perspective, uh, those changes are beginning to be felt. I think we're still excited about coming back to what we used to be. Well, now we can get together again, even though we still are masked here in Israel and we're still a bit limited in number. The bottom line is schools are open again. So are recreation centers. There was uh, great celebrations over Sukkot. So people are excited to be back. But once they're excited to be back, they still have in the back of their mind the fact that during COVID, they could tailor what they want, when they want it, and how they want it. They didn't have to conform to what everyone else was doing, be it in shul or be it in other places. And I think we're going to begin to see that. In other words, we're going to begin to see more and more individualism sprout out. Interesting. I, one of the things that I heard was a fascinating story from another friend of mine, Rabbi Haisharik, who was on the Beit Din Hagadol of, of the Rabbanut. Uh, he lives in Bayit Vagan. And uh, he said during COVID, because they were all davening in the street, he met people he had never known before. Yeah. And whereas he would daven in a certain shtibel in, in Bayit Vagan, all of a sudden he was davening together with the Tilu Umi people who he normally didn't know were neighbors. And they were with him. And relationships were created that changed the nature for him of the community. The same did the same thing happen in uh, in the Gush Etzion, which are a little bit more homogeneous than, let's say, a Bayit Vagan. I'll be honest. Uh, the same thing happened even in Gush Etzion, but as you said, were more homogeneous. So there wasn't a situation like you're describing, where a Datilu me all of a sudden met a Haredi who met a Mesorati, someone traditional yet not religious. That happened more in the cities, not so much in these settlements in Gush Etzion. But I'll tell you what did happen on the other side of it. And that is that you're talking about the positive aspect. If I can just be a bit negative, I think a lot of human relations were at least tarnished, if not ruined, during COVID. People, of course, and rightfully so, stopped inviting people for Shabbos and Yontav meals. And in general, social interaction was stopped. To recreate that, was, is not that easy. I just heard yesterday, Rabbi, that a family was extremely offended that what they thought was a close friend did not invite them to a Shabbos bar mitzvah, a kiddush, not a hotel, a kiddush uh, here in the neighborhood, simply because, as we say in Hebrew, rachok miha'ayin, rachok miha'lev. I don't see them, so I don't think about them. And unfortunately, that's something that we're going to have to overcome now as we hopefully are getting out of COVID. Really, this and that—that is—I—I um, I, maybe I'm a little Pollyannish. Looking back, there were tragedies during COVID, but I think there are so many opportunities that we have to grab onto now, from what came out of those year, those months. The individualism that you were talking about in terms of tefillah, I think we had a chance to revisit and see how things can be different. And if we go back to precisely what had been, I think we're making. We're missing an opportunity and making a big mistake. Absolutely. Relationships, uh, one of the things that I found fascinating was I attended more um, brisim and more weddings out of town, not being out of town, but being on Zoom. And even though I would prefer now, whenever I can go somewhere, I'll go somewhere, but now I have opportunities to do that. And also yeah. the opportunity for what we're doing right now. Uh, before COVID, I had used Zoom 
uh, but I never imagined using it in this fashion, and I never thought that people would be watching it. And now, typically, on these conversations, we'll have somewhere in the range of um, you know fifteen hundred to two thousand views, uh, and it's it's pretty spectacular. So I think there's a lot of wonderful things that I'm looking forward to. I'm hoping that we'll be able to grab onto them. And I, I, I don't know, you know, I obviously I don't know what's going on in Israel right now, but I'm hoping that what's going on in Israel will mirror some of what we're doing, or maybe it will lead to what, what we are doing and making it even more powerful, if at all possible. And I'm hopefully all of these things will come together in a more beautiful fashion. Just, I, I don't want to leave this. You did write a third book. Two of them were on tefillah. The third one you mentioned to me earlier, Beyond the Routine, is talking more about how we take all of the positive out of Shabbat and Yom Tov and bring it with us a little bit further. So that I, I believe is really very, very important. And I don't want to leave it by the side. I thank you for all of these contributions you've made. And also you have a tremendous amount of classes that are recorded. You've done, are they on YU Torah? Where are they located? You're... They're mainly on YU Torah. They're also on, uh, some of them are on YouTube. And if you mentioned the positives of COVID, indeed the fact that we were talking on Zoom so often, it was so easy to record and put it on YouTube. And I didn't know that certain people actually prefer seeing the person when they listen to a class versus just hearing them. It was indefinitely something that COVID uh, taught us all. Uh, unlike you, Rabbi, I didn't know Zoom existed before COVID. <laughs> well, it does exist. And believe it or not, it has made a difference. And it's become a verb in Hebrew and a verb in English, la Zoom, or to Zoom with someone else. And uh, Baruch Hashem, those are some of the good things. I thank you for your time. Our time is up. It really ran by very quickly. The challenges of tefillah are something we're all going to have to really take to heart because it really is core to who we are and we really need to work on it ever so more and i'm so grateful that you have written and contributed and shared your ideas with us today rabbi thank you so very much have thank you for day. having me rabbi it was a pleasure to see you at least this way and hopefully we'll meet in person sooner than later amen bye-bye have a good day have a good one take care bye-bye